The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. Hold it. One, two, three strikes, you're out at the old ball game. Welcome back to Short Hops and Tall Tales, a pictureless podcast highlighting the romantic elements of baseball that make America's pastime special. I'm once again joined by my co-host, Brandon Riddle, and we're bringing you some of the most interesting stories from baseball's history. Brandon, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing just fine. I'm really excited about the guests this week. Um, it's us. <laughs> we're the guests. <laughs> we are the guests. Yes, once yeah. again, uh, just us tonight, like Brandon said, but we do have a lot of really interesting content on tap, which I'm going to get in here into mm-hmm. here in a second. Uh, so leading off, we've got a story about uh, the greatest hitter of all time, uh, arguably. It's Ted Williams <laughs> and his Hall of Fame uh, fishing career. Which not, not baseball, just just fish. Fishing not, yeah, exactly. Just just he was a, a Hall of Fame fly fisher. So that's something that I never expected to read uh, when I when I, you know, stumbled onto it last mm-hmm. week. Uh, so we'll get into that. <laughs> uh, then we're going to go into a little bit of a, a trivia question. And then Brandon is going to talk about one of my favorite players, Oscar Charleston. Oh, I, I, I didn't know he was one of your favorite players. That's yeah. Cool. I mean, Oscar Charleston, Satchel Paige. Um, Josh Gibson obviously is up there. We got stuff to talk about today. I'm We've excited. got stuff to talk about. And if you don't know who Oscar Charleston is, you're going to find out. And then finally, we're going to close it off uh, with a top secret operation. Uh, we are intent on getting Mike Trout to the playoffs in 2021. And we're going to talk about how we're going to do it. It might might uh, take into account a time machine, maybe some magic. Uh, but we'll get there when we get there. Oh, it's that. We, we need magic to get the Angels to the playoffs. Let's do this. Yeah, yeah, angels in in the lineup in the in the outfield everywhere. <laughs> so to kick things off, like I said, Ted Williams, a Hall of Fame fly fisherman. Uh, What's now, up? really quick before you, you jump into the Ted Williams and his story, how did you stumble upon him being a fisherman? Because like, if you hadn't known about this, like you found out about it a week ago, like what led you down that path to find that story? Honestly, it was just something that I read off of the back of a baseball card. So I have, uh, I collect baseball cards like I assume everyone does. You probably have at some point in your life. Uh, And I had an old, I don't have it in front of me right now, but it was an old set that actually had a bunch of uh, stars from baseball's golden era. Uh, So there's Ty Cobb, 
Ted Williams. Uh, there's actually a cool Papa Bell card. Nice. Uh, like it was, it was really. I think Marvin Miller was in it as well. <laughs> uh, like a really broad range of of baseball players. And on the back, I remember it. It had a a nod to Ted Williams's like is is fisherman days so i was just digging through a box of my old baseball cards that i hadn't seen in forever and i just happened to find this little tidbit of info and i just kind of kind of ran with it ran got down the rabbit hole with that one yeah 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 you could say it reeled me in there you go um, wait i don't encourage that, that question <laughs> okay um anyway ted williams so like i said considered one of the greatest hitters of all time if not the top right uh just a quick resume for those of you that aren't familiar with teddy ball game uh, 19 time all-star two mvps uh two triple crowns so that means he led the league in average runs batted in and runs which is almost impossible uh over 500 home runs so really, truly one of the greatest players to ever play baseball, inner circle Hall of Famer. You've probably at least heard his name if you weren't familiar with who he was up to now. So uh, also, I just lost my train of thought. <laughs> uh, Brandon, where would you say Ted Williams ranks in in your, I guess, inner circle Hall of Famers? In my Parthenon of Olympic baseball yeah. gods? Um, yeah. Oof. He would easily probably be in the top six because, of course, you have the bat, but then you have other parts of the game like fielding. That's and true. I don't, was, was, I don't recall, was he like an elite fielder or just a pretty good fielder? I don't remember because obviously I don't remember, but I just don't know. I mean, we obviously didn't have – we didn't really have fielding metrics back then mm-hmm. in the sense that we do now. Uh, at the time, he was regarded as a fairly average fielder. Um, I think definitely for me, at least rank him just under Willie Mays in terms of mm-hmm. he's more of an all around athlete. Uh, and this is a rabbit hole that we can go into for an hour here. Yeah, uh, I, I, I just have one quick story about Ted Williams, the course. ball player, before we go into the, the, the fishing, fishing player, fishing guy. Uh, fisherman. Uh, yeah. Fisher, oh, fisherman. That makes sense. <laughs> um, so you got uh, there. And Ted Williams last at bat. It was not the last game of the season, but the last game was at Yankee Stadium. So instead, he sat out that series, uh, but he played the last series, of course, at Fenway, front of the home crowd. And the legend is, of course, that his first two at bats in this cold, you know, windy Boston day went out to the warning track and could have gone out any other days. Uh, but then his last at bat came up and he swung at the fastball and he was late at it. And in his head, apparently he thought, um, that this young pitcher thinks this old man, Ted Williams, can't get around on the fastball anymore. And so Williams kind of played it off like, oh, that was fast. And he got back in the box and expecting the fastball, sat on it, and last at bat of his career, launched it into the seats for a home run. So up until his very last um, at bat, still thinking about the game. And another crazy thing is that that game, his last at bat, Teddy Ballgame's last at bat was not televised. It's just wow. one of those legendary moments that exist in, you know, our concept of newspapers because we couldn't see it live. 10,000 people in Fenway saw it. That was that's it. that's wild. That's one of those at bats that you would get almost oh, passed absolutely. down as a family heirloom in terms of a memory. Right. Like mm-hmm. that's and that's that's really a microcosm of who he was as a baseball player. Uh, he was really ahead of his time on a ton of hitting concepts like swing plane. Uh, we yep. later start talking about launch angle. Launch right. Angles. Um, so he was really just one of the greatest hitters for a reason, but, but the other (laughs) side of Ted Williams. Uh, So just a little bit of background about Ted. Uh, He grew up in San Diego and something that I thought was kind of interesting that I had 
never knew about him until researching was he actually when he was 18 he played for the San Diego Padres when they were a minor league team in the Pacific Coast League the year before he actually played in their inaugural season but in 1937 uh, 18 Excuse me. In 1937, 18-year-old Ted Williams actually led the Padres to a championship uh, in the PCL. So I just thought that was one of those weird nuggets. You know, the Padres Mm -hmm. obviously would not become a major league team for many, many years later. But I thought that was really interesting that that you could say. yeah. Yeah. How did he get into fishing, though? So, like I said, he grew up in San Diego. Uh, Great weather, obviously, right by the beach. There's the oceans right there. He was actually introduced to fishing by his neighbor growing up, uh, who had been a game warden at one point in his life. And he actually started going on fishing trips with his friend's dad across the street. And that's when he really started to develop a passion for it, along with, uh, you know, hunting, too. He was a very mm-hmm. outdoorsy kid growing up in San Diego. So this was just something that he a hobby that he really nurtured as he's going through the minor leagues, uh, going through baseball. And when he was a rookie, he actually learned to fly fish. And this is where his passion really took off. Uh, So this is something that he did routinely throughout his major league career. He became an expert fisherman and an angler, while at the same time becoming one of the greatest athletes in American (laughs) sports history. Yeah, and and it's funny. I'm I'm sure most people will go out fishing to relax and take the mind off things. And no doubt, you know, Teddy Ballgame did the same thing. But he's getting at, you know, expert levels of fishing. So not only is he trying to relax, I'm sure at the same time, he's pushing himself in that aspect of his life too. So not as much relaxing as it is trying to strive to be the best in everything he's doing, which is crazy. Exactly. He had that legendary focus and, you know, that need to be inventive as a hitter that definitely carried over into his fishing game. And yeah, like like you said, fishing is a very I mean, I'm personally don't go fishing hardly ever, uh, but, you know, it is a very relaxing activity. And he actually used to uh, start his day. Sometimes he'd go fishing in the morning before going and playing games at Fenway Park later that day, kind of to get his his mind right. Uh, for for the game that night that is like the dream old guy life going right fishing in the morning and catching the game in the, in the afternoon. Play baseball That's perfect yeah you, you can't draw it up better than that no um although he did eventually he he started to limit his in-season fishing uh later on down the line because he thought that he was casting so much he thought that the motion uh. was going to end up impacting his swing uh, so he did have to have to balance it a little bit um so he, he had to make some concessions, but <laughs> what a nice problem to have, right? You know, you, it, it's like Mookie Betts. He's so good at bowling, you know, like he's got out or Stephen Curry, who's a great golfer too, having to allocate your time because you're too good at one sport. You don't want to have your, your hobby sport mess yeah, up sto- story of my life, you know? Yeah. But like, like we were saying, you know, of course he was actually a very impressive fisherman. He actually made some smaller headlines in 1949 uh, when he actually caught a 394 pound tuna, which is just massive. I didn't know that tuna could get that large. I'm only really familiar with it in, in the can. Um, (laughs) So (laughs) yeah, we're we're city boys here. We don't know. 400 pounds of tuna. Like that's, that's wild. Uh, So obviously his legend is starting to grow uh, alongside because you've, so 
what I'm thinking at this point, he's making his his name as an all star as a baseball mm-hmm. player. Did he just kind of go to these fishermen meetups and, and, and club stuff just very under the radar? Did he have like a fake mustache? Because <laughs> at this point, baseball is the largest sport in America. And you can't tell me that he didn't get up at his local. I, I don't know if they have like fishermen chapter meetings or whatever. And, you know, somebody's in the back back rows going, hey, that, that's Teddy ball game, right? <laughs> He has a fake mustache. That's Teddy Williams. Yeah, maybe maybe Trout could get away with it, you know, today, but For definitely not reasons. Ted Williams um, at his peak. Yeah, yeah. but uh, he he became very skilled and very well known in these fishing circles because he was exceptional at tying flies, casting, reeling, uh, and. Like I said, he brought that same level of focus to fishing as he did to hitting a baseball with how scientific he was. So that standard of excellence is something that I find really, really interesting that he was able to excel at this because Mm -hmm. it's kind of really he just wanted to get better every day, even though it was a relaxing activity for him. And I guess fishing has the the two true outcomes. You either catch the fish or you don't. So that probably appealed as well. (laughs) That's true. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, no walks in fishing, I guess. No, no. I mean, you can get a nibble. A Strike nibble, out or home You run. still don't get yeah. the fish, yeah. True, true. Um, but he, like I said, his name really grew. He ended up doing casting exhibitions at wow. fishing shows. And, uh, you know, he traveled the world, really, in search of, you know, his hobby. Uh, he fished for salmon near his home on the Miramichi River in New Brunswick. Uh, fished in Florida, Canada, the Bahamas. Uh, and he chased around uh, one of the fish that he really valued uh, hunting or hunting. Is that the right term? Yeah, hunting. Go with hunting. hunting. Yeah, fishing. Uh, somebody, somebody's going to be listening to this and be a very, very intense fisherman and, and just, just be, be slightly bad. ticked off by by mm-hmm. the slight. I, I apologize. I like you can I find said, him at Noah Scott on Twitter. Yeah. Just just <laughs> read me with my lack of fishing knowledge or take me fishing. I'm open to either. Um, <laughs> anyway, he he considered the Atlantic salmon or salmon. <laughs> he considered the Atlantic salmon, the greatest of game fish. And it was one of his big three. So when researching this, Ted Williams wrote a whole book on fishing called Ted Williams fishing, the big three. Uh, he did this with his uh, autobiographer, um, John Underwood, who helped him on his first book. And you get a really interesting look into Ted Williams, the fisherman here in, in this book. So uh, like I said, this guy that he's working with, uh, John Underwood, uh, he's got this quote for Ted Williams. Uh, and he says, basically, when you go fishing with Ted, there are four things to remember. Number one, he's a perfectionist. Number two, he's better at it than you are. <laughs> number three, he's a consummate needler. And number four, Ted is in charge. So he brings to fishing the same hard-eyed intensity, the same brooding capacity for scientific inquiry and, uh, that he brought to hitting a baseball. So this right, wasn't um, a joke. Like no. this sounds very regimented and kind of scary to go no, fishing. I don't. With Ted I don't Williams. think I would have fun fishing with Ted Williams. I think I'd be terrified. Just sit there in silence. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yes, Mr. Williams. Absolutely, yeah. Mr. Williams. Um, and so, like I said, he he had this big three, right? And that consisted of uh, the three fish that Ted found worthy of any true sportsman. The tarpon, the bonefish, and the Atlantic salmon. Uh, he called these the triple crown. Uh, and as you know, he was big on triple crowns. He won two of them in his career. Uh, and he, he got the triple crown with these three fish. He ended up catching 1,000 of each, at least, by 1982. He, he had re- recorded. He caught over 1,000 of each of these three fish. 
that's ridiculous. Cut, cut and released, I see. Yeah. And released. He released them. Uh, so he didn't just have you know 3,000 fish just in his basement <laughs> out, in a yeah. cooler. And this is something that I really admire about his, uh, you know, his take to fishing as a craft. And he's, he's got this quote uh, that's big here, and it says that releasing a great fish is the greatest thrill I get from fishing. So I think that's pretty cool because he does this, you know, obviously he's catching thousands of fish, um, you know, conserving them a little bit. Uh, I thought I thought that was a cool quote, at least. Yeah, for me. like a, a lot of these quotes, like the three fish worthy of any true sportsman. This sounds like Hemingway talking about fishing. It's it's very it's very Ron Swanson. And it's very interesting that you mentioned Hemingway, because nope. along with Ted Williams, and I was going to get to this in a second, but along with Ted Williams, Ernest Hemingway is also a member of the Fishing Hall of Fame. So that's a really weird huh. connection that you just made right there. Yeah, I didn't even see that in the notes. That's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> so that's what I was looking. I was looking through uh, the International Game and Fish, Fish Association Fishing Hall of Fame, and I was looking for Ted Williams's entry. And yeah, I saw Ernest Hemingway staring me right in the face. So yeah. it's very, you know, very Norman Rockwell, I think. Um, <laughs> but moving on. Uh, so Ted, he ended up getting a deal with Sears to actually develop a line of sports equipment, uh, including fishing and baseball gear. He had his own Ted Williams edition boat uh, and a Ted Williams edition, uh, you know, motor. So I guess that's a really interesting endorsement. Uh, I don't know what the equivalent would be today. Maybe like, I don't know, Randy Jackson endorsing like a frying pan it's just very i don't know well obviously you know ted williams fish so that's a bad comparison to make mm-hmm. uh, but i just think that like it'd be very interesting for me to see ted williams's name on something like a boat right yeah i'd buy that boat if i if i like boats i would buy a ted williams boat for sure oh yeah D- dependable for 20 years so Anyway, like I said, he did end up getting inducted into the uh, IGFA Hall of Fame in 2000, uh, a couple of years before he died. When in doing so, he actually joined three other athletes to be inducted into the Hall of Fame in more than one professional sport. Uh, I was going to ask this in the form of a trivia question to see if you could guess the other athletes. I'm going to think probably not because probably I not, no. Okay. <laughs> so along with Ted Williams, uh, Jim Brown, Cumberland Posey and Carl Hubbard are the only athletes to be inducted for more than one professional sport. Hmm. Of course, there are many that have been inducted in a professional sport and then a different college sport. Uh, but I think that's pretty cool. Uh, yeah. Who's next? Maybe Mookie Betts, maybe Madison Mumgarner. Maybe uh, we got we, we got to somehow every episode we got to somehow limit your Mookie Betts references because you're just the Mookie I got, number one right. fan here. <laughs> I I mean, how could you not like him? He's, <laughs> <laughs> no, you're right. You're right. Yeah, no, the Dodgers would just do bad. If you're following along, I, I guess it's like a, a drinking game rule or something. Like every time I mention Mookie Betts, uh, yeah, mm-hmm. I, I, apologies. We we need an alarm. Oh, don't something. apologize for your love. Yeah. Let it show. Yeah, but. Like I said, Ted Williams, very, very prolific fisher over the course of his career. And one of the cool, I think, secrets that, you know, resides in the Hall of Fame that we dig up new stories every day, every time we do this. And so I really enjoyed this. And to close it out, they asked uh, Ted Williams one time, they're like, you know, why, why fishing? Why are you so why is this your your passion, your second passion? And this was really poetic, what he said. And he says, it's the anticipation of the strike. The anticipation that with every cast, something might happen. The love of making the perfect cast. The love of just being there, away from telephones, away from people. You, you, you can't tell me that that wasn't Ernest Hemingway. <laughs> right? 
right? I, I mean, that that's 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 poetry. And what I think is a really cool, you know, it really ties together. That's basically why a lot of people love baseball. Mm-hmm. It's really the anticipation of something happening, how it builds and builds when you've got bases loaded and, you know, a pitcher who's gassed at the mound pitching to Ted Williams, maybe, right? It's that anticipation of something is going to happen, you know, every single pitch. Uh, and it's just really just the the atmosphere of being in the ballpark, taking in the sights, the smells, being away from people, I guess. In Ted's <laughs> Depending words. on the team, be far away from people. Yeah, yeah. So it, it it does really make sense to me why he also was a very very big fan of of fishing. So I thought this this story was really really cool. Hope you did as well. Um, now, any last thoughts on Ted Williams before we move on into the pickoff round? I don't know if there's a story out there. I'm assuming there is, but I would love to hear a story of when Ted Williams and Mickey Mantle went fishing because Mantle was was another big fisherman, and I would really? love to know what happened on that boat. Yeah. <laughs> Just two diametrically opposed personalities coming together to fish. I want to see that. That would be that'd be a great a great movie, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to find that story. And then next time you'll hear it next time, next time. Uh, but right now coming at us, uh, Brandon, you've got a pick off trivia question. Yes, sir. All right. Going quickly to it. Only four players in Major League Baseball history have hit home runs before they turned 20 and after they turned 40. Can you name two of the four? Nope. And, and I don't know this <laughs> answer either. Um um, so I have people no that, that came up early and stayed in late, um, I'm going to think of like inside the home with... runs, for like a Ty Cobb, for example. Interesting. Um, um, yeah, he played forever. That's a good. Yeah. Maybe I, like. I don't think Griffey played. Till, did Griffey play I was going to say Griffey. I, 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 that was my, my next question was, I mm-hmm. don't know if he made it to his 40s because I was, that was going to be my next choice. I feel like Miguel Cabrera could very much, he could very soon join this list yeah, because that, he came in as a there. teenager. Um, and he, not, he he got in the opening day home run this year. That was very cool. DC. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody um, who came up very young and <sighs> Jeter, I maybe. I, I don't know did, when Jeter. I, did Jeter come up in 19? I don't think he was up there. He, yeah, he was older. He was older. You're right. Yeah. All right. Let's let's see what we got here. All right. Maybe let's remove the blinders. All right. Um, four players. Here we go. Ty Cobb. Oh, wow. You got it. Uh, Rusty Staub. 63 and 85. Would not have guessed that. (laughs) That was my last one. Gary Sheffield. Really? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. I didn't know Gary Sheffield came up that young. 1988 to 2009. Very cool. And this last guy we should have got. This is very obvious. Um, I'm going to give you a hint. He was a Yankee in our lifetime. Retired in the last five, six years. I was going to say CC for a second, but then I remember oh. this was about hitters. Um, probably, I'm going to go with A-Rod. A-Rod, yep. He's, he's it was A-Rod? Four. It was A-Rod, oh. yeah. Right. Yeah, we should have got that coming up in 19 yeah. with the Mariners. We were we were right there with Ken Griffey Jr., though. I, I feel like we we just were, were a little off. Yeah. Interesting. Par for the course for us. A little bit off. <laughs> you know, we bat we bat five hundred. That's that's Hall right. of Fame level. <laughs> All right, cool. Um, so now on to uh, a player profile today. We talked about him a little bit at the start of the show. It's Oscar Charleston, the Negro League legend. Legend, absolute legend. 
So Oscar Charleston, um, he was a player that you know I knew the name of previously, uh, but then this year I actually uh, bought a, a book about him and really dove into him as a player. And it turns out he's one of the top five ranked. And like if you go to any um, baseball rankings, he's routinely in the top five, easy time every time. Definitely in the top ten of all ball players to ever play. Um, so some of the great quotes that kind of encapsulate this. Uh, this one's from Buck O'Neill. Um, he said Charleston was like Ty Cobb, Babe Ruth, and Tri Speaker rolled into one. He was Willie Mays before we knew who Willie was. Well, even Honus Wagner, um, of course, a white ball player, uh, said of him, I've seen all the greats in many years I've been around and have yet to see anyone greater than Charleston. Like these are amazing quotes came from people that have seen thousands of ball players come and go from Babe Ruth to Lou Gehrig saying he is the best. Um, so he very much so is shrouded in some of this legend because, of course, he played in the Negro Leagues from, oh, I think it was 1918 to the late 30s. And so we don't have that many box scores. Uh, what we do have from places like Seamheads, for example, they do great at chronicling the Negro Leagues. He hit 350. Wow. Uh, 430 and 573. That's incredible. For his career? That's, for an entire career, hit 350 for a career. That's That's amazing. That and, is amazing. Yeah, and so the numbers are just part of the legend as well. Uh, of course, of course, whenever you talk about players from the early 20th century, they always come with these stories and um, these amazing backstories behind them. Uh, so, for example, there's legend that he tore the hood off a Klansman, uh, that he fight off five Cuban police officers during a fight on the field, uh, that he threw a professional wrestler off a train. Wait. Yeah, th- which part? Which part? Because <laughs> we're not done. Like, what kind of wrestler are we talking about here? Like, like that's 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 wild. Uh, yeah, I, I'm, I, I mean, have, all of this is wild that, that you're right. reading, but that specifically no, in, in my head, what, in my head, that's like one of those early cartoons when you have like the um, I forget what they're called, the, the like the spandex basically robot with the twirly mustache and the bald head. Like he threw him off the train. Or something wow, like that. interesting. <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, he was constantly on fights on the field. He never actually started fights, but he would finish them very fast. There was one story. Uh, this was, again, in early Negro League days um, when a player of his was called out at second base and the second baseman like really hit the guy um, to make sure he was out, really hit him hard. And so the, set, the, the runner jumped up and started jawing at him and the umpire got in his face too. And the umpire... Um, I think at that point was packing heat because that was common back in the day. And so the second base oh. threw a punch at the runner and Charleston came in and just finished him off and then finished the umpire off too. And then he had to go run away from the field and hide out for a couple of days. Wait, seriously? That's yeah. That's um, crazy. That's yeah. I, I was finding out, um, I was reading a book about Oscar, the legend, the life and legend, the baseball's greatest forgotten player. And yeah, they kind of go into some depth there about how oftentimes umpires, uh, because they would often get beat, literally beat on the field or after the game, they would bring guns with them for protection. And it was not unusual to have these fights on the field either. Um, and that wasn't just common to the Negro Leagues. That was coming to Major League Baseball at this time. Remember, you have Ty Cobb going up to the stands and doing things like that and, you know, barnstorming exhibition games. So that was not unusual. But for us, it's crazy to think that you that can is just crazy. deck an umpire, and that's happened multiple times in those leagues, even in the majors. Wow. Um, so that happened. Um, he mentored Satchel Page when Page first entered professional baseball. Um, he also mentored um, Josh Gibson as well, uh, over 800 unofficial career home runs, and he scouted Roy Campanella for Branch Rickey. 
in his um, later days. So, so he mentored basically the greatest pitcher and greatest hitter of all time. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was cool. also on the same team as like Cool Papa Bell when he was That's first incredible. coming up. Uh, Judy Johnson, an amazing third baseman. Uh, so he played on some incredible teams with immense talent around him. And through all that time, even with these Hall of Famers around him, he still stood, you know, shoulders and heads above them. Um, you can go look at these old newspapers and they're, they're still quote him as like the first black superstar player. And he's, you know, Babe Ruth. Um, as a matter of fact, he had incredible power. I keep saying that word incredible when it comes to Oscar, but it's, it's tough not to do that. Uh, there was one year he hit a home run every 26 plate appearances. That was in 1918. Wow. That is 21 years old. And this is during, remember, still the dead ball era, even in the Negro Leagues. Oh, yeah. Uh, so he right. was doing it right next to Ruth at the exact same time. All right. So I'm going to back up a little bit here. I got excited. I want to talk about the legend and the numbers for a little bit. Uh, but in Indianapolis, he did grow up being like the bat boy for the ABCs. Uh, that was the local Negro League club, the ABCs of Indianapolis. And then at a young age, at 15, he lied about his age to go join the army during World War One, And he didn't go to the front lines or anything. They stationed him in, out in the Philippines. And I learned as well that the Philippines uh, were basically wherever you had American stationmen staying, there was going to be a baseball league of some kind. And the Philippines was no exception. And so Oscar, about 15 years old, uh, joined these leagues, playing against these grown men, and of course, dominated. Uh, not only was he a great fielder, but he was also a pitcher. Uh, they put him in the All-Star game, and he pitched a one-hit shutout and hit a triple in the same game. <laughs> As if like a 15, 16-year-old against these grown men. Wow. Uh, so right away, it was kind of known he had this immense potential. And again, the newspapers, this was in Manila, uh, wrote about this young young boy they were calling him and just pumping him up like it was again incredible and so he was he he left a couple years later and went back to indianapolis play with the abcs and then he just went to superstar them uh we mentioned the home run every 26 plate appearances he would go on to hit over 400 five times and these are just the official stats that we have um going back to seam heads that um new league statistics site um that those are just the known box scores. There are still hundreds and hundreds of games out there that we don't have box scores for. That we don't know how many home runs or stolen bases he got. Because uh, not only was he that Babe Ruth figure, he was also extraordinarily fast on the bases. And the Rhinos at the time always called him scientific. He was a scientific base runner and a scientific fielder. Because uh, of course he studied the pitcher, he knew when to take off, and he was incredibly efficient at doing so. And then his fielding was another, I don't want to say incredible again, um, but immense talent of the man. Um, after he watched Tris Speaker play in an early game, um, he noticed how Speaker would play extremely shallow in center field because he had enough speed to run back and catch the ball. And so Charleston kind of, did, kind of uh, what's the word, mirrored the game after Speaker there. He would play really shallow and then with his immense speed, would go get the ball. And almost any time you see a, a box score at Charleston or see a newspaper clipping, it's going to mention his fielding because uh, he would just go get them. Well, thinking like Ken Griffey Jr. and Willie Mays before we knew who Waze, uh, Mays was and had the arm because remember he was a pitcher growing up. So he can still beam it from the from the warning track to second base. Yeah. And it's it's really interesting that you mentioned that Buck O'Neill quote about Willie Mays because I remember when I first learned about Oscar Charleston was... 
think it's about a year ago now, uh, in Joe Posnanski's Baseball 100, where he uh-huh. did this series uh, while we were waiting for the 2021, or excuse me, the 2020 season to potentially come back. He did a series counting down uh, the top 100 baseball players of all time, and he ranked Oscar Charleston at number five. Oh, was it five? Okay. Yeah, yeah. He ranked Oscar Charleston oh, at number five, which is, it's above... Well, it's above 95 of the greatest baseball players of all time, not even to mention whoever's not on that list. Uh, And in his article that I highly recommend you read, I recommend the whole series because Joe Posnanski is legendary. It's actually being put into a book that's coming out in October 2021. So check it out in the book because it's an amazing read. That's kind of where I got this Charleston book from as well as mentioned in the article. So I jumped on it. Yeah. Um, and he has this uh, in his article, Posnanski pulls up this story about, you know, the catch, you know, Willie Mays, uh, 1954 in the World Series at the Polo Grounds. He made that spectacular running catch, turned around with his cannon of an arm and, and you know, the rest is history. Right. Mm-hmm. And so uh, Buck O'Neill, he, he says he said only one other guy I ever saw could have made that catch said it was Oscar Charleston. He he was Willie Mays before Willie Mays. And it's it's just wild that he was doing all of this stuff at such a high level. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's mind blowing that there could even be two Willie Mayses in history just for how good he was. Right. right. And, and so one of the common perceptions, thoughts is that, you know, they weren't necessarily playing the best because, of course, they're not playing in the best field. So they have poor equipment. They're not getting paid super well. Charleston was making good money at his peak, especially for a black baseball player. Um, and so they go, what well, did they play against major leaguers? Well, it turns out they actually did. Uh, there, there were exhibition games that were common between uh, Negro League uh, teams and white major league teams. Uh, not necessarily like the Detroit Tigers would come down, but there'd be a hodgepodge of players that would come out for exhibitions. And so Charleston uh, played against white ball players such as Dizzy Dean, Lou Gehrig, Walter Johnson, Bob Beller, Lefty Grove, legit Hall of Famers coming to play these Negro Leaguers. And what did Charleston do against them? Well, he hit 318 with 11 home runs and 53 recorded box scores. So it's not like he was just getting, you know, doing great against exhibition games or barnstorming amateur teams. No, he hit legitimate major league talent at an incredible clip. There's that incredible again. Yeah. And it's it's also worth just while we're on the subject here, uh, it's a common misnomer uh, that people say that you know the Negro leagues were you know not as organized or what have you you know when compared to Major League Baseball at the time. Uh, that's totally not true. These right. players were better than the Major Leaguers, and you know if fantastic players incredible mm-hmm. like we've been rattling off names all you know all podcast uh was 100 a major league very very well organized um so just next time you you think about that um you know be sure to keep right. that in mind that this yeah. level of competition was unseen of mm-hmm. we'll, we're never going to get this level of competition again with with this this many hall of famers in yeah. these barnstorming games and we had major league leagues at the same level folding as well. So it's it, so yes, Negro league Negro leagues, plural, did fold and rise throughout the years just due to funding, um, teams going and falling here and that. But also um, white leagues at the major league level will also fall and rise as well. So you're exactly right. Uh, this was just how baseball went during that time. 
Um, but I, I cannot recommend the book, um, Oscar Charleston, or put it down in the show notes, I'm sure, the life and legend of baseball's greatest gun player. Uh, it's been a fabulous read. And to kind of wrap this up, he ended up passing fairly early at the age of 57 in 1954. And about 20 years later, um, he was elected to the Baseball Hall of Fame. And of course, he couldn't be there. But Oscar's sister was there and she gave his induction speech and said it was the greatest delight of her life. So I kind of like putting the bow on that. So unfortunately, yeah. he never did get to play in the majors, but he did help people like Josh Gibson, Shashel Page, Cool Papa Bell, uh, Roy Campanella, I'm, I'm sure Jackie in some capacity as well. Yeah. Um, so he touched a lot of baseball because uh, he was a manager, player manager for a number of years, and then just a manager. So the amount of people um, in his baseball family tree has to be astounding. Incredible. One of, one of, we, there's that word again. Uh, one of the greatest... <laughs> athletes of all time um, don't just take it from us though uh, be sure to check out the uh, national negro league museum mm-hmm. uh, go check it out in kansas city it is 100 worth the ticket down there have you been there i have not but it is okay. on my on my short list as soon as you know i we're flying and everything yeah uh, please check it out bob kendrick down there uh, you will learn so so much uh, just just read about these players uh, if you if you don't know about them because their legends deserve to be told as well. Uh, but that is Oscar Charleston. Uh, we're never going to get another one like him. But we do have Mike Trout, which that was kind of a rough segue. But <laughs> oh, that works. Speaking of great, we do have Mike Trout. Speaking of five tool incredible athletes, uh, here is our final discussion for the evening. Our final topic. It is Operation. Get Mike Trout to the 2021 playoffs. Subtitled, a.k.a. Mission Impossible. I see you added in there on the notes. I don't think it's impossible. I actually did have the Angels down this year as making it to the World Series. Then again, I've said that I did. That was my official prediction. Um, I am 100% ready to be wrong, but I'm hopeful as I am, you know, (laughs) with the Angels. Uh, So what we're going to talk about here is... Which players, uh, pick a player from history and one from modern day to add to this 2021 Angels team that is currently fighting for first place? Uh, Which player would you add to help push them over the top to win the AL West division? So any player in the history of baseball added to this team to get them over the bump and get to October. Yeah, I mean, okay. you can you can go with very, very inner circle if you want. Uh, I just I'm it's a it's a reasoning discussion. Okay. I think right. it's kind of like taking up, you know, a project team in out of the park baseball or, or MLB the show, one of those simulators <laughs> and rebuilding yep. them into contenders. Um, All right. Yeah. So let, let's uh, try to do historical players first. Historical first. All right. All right. Do you want to go first? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll go first here. Okay. Um, so I, I kicked this around, and obviously we could go with Oscar Charleston, uh, but he does play the same position as Trout, so that's kind of a redundancy at that moment. Um, so I'm kind of going modern and historical with this pick because he was a two-way player, one of the first two-way players, and did it the best there ever was, Babe Ruth. Oh, come on. <laughs> All right. Any player in history, well, I'm going to add Babe Ruth to this team. Okay. What's the reasoning, though? Well, oh. Of course, you got Otani out there who's doing okay. double duty. So let's add Babe Ruth doing double duty as well. Uh, he's going to get them dingers, get the strikeouts, go. And not only he's not going to give you a five or six innings, he's going to give you a complete game every time out. That's and then true. turn around the next day and hit the home run or maybe first pitch of the season. <laughs> That's. I mean, he'll he'll definitely your your hot dog budget will take a hit for sure. You know what? That's I I think Art Moreno is willing to take that 
hit the hot dogs <laughs> for Babe Ruth. It, honestly, that would be just beyond the whole and greatest then, oh, baseball player of all time. Just and having then, Babe Ruth and Otani on one team, two would two-way you players. Hit, would you hit Ruth before or after Trout? Ooh, I think <laughs> like, I go... Tr- I don't know who's hitting leadoff for him now. Is it David Fletcher? <laughs> I hit Babe Ruth after David Fletcher for sure. Um, I think you got to hit Trout leadoff. I think, and then you mm-hmm. go with I'm thinking the same thing. Then I you think go Ruth second. I think I think Trout leadoff, Ruth or Otani second because Otani can also run, and then you've that's got Rendon. True. Either way you slice it, that's a nasty top I, four. That's like I already go out of my way to watch Godly. Angels game because they're so much fun to watch. Me but too. Add, add a legendary bat another legendary bat in there count me in yeah so you obviously you went with babe ruth obviously i cannot top babe ruth but i for one would love to see uh just spanning generations an outfield of mike trout and vladdy uh Mm. vladimir guerrero Mm. Um, that would feel good yeah i i almost accidentally said vladimir guerrero jr there for a second because i feel like (laughs) i just talk about him a lot more often Uh, but imagine that the greatest you know angel of I mean, the past generation with the greatest angel possibly of all time and Mike Trout, just two number, also both number 27. So which player wears, you know, do they both wear the same number? I don't know. They can work this out in the locker room, but I feel like that would be just so cool to see. I mean, you could get like K-Rod on the mound or something. I, for one, just love those uh, connections that really span generations in franchises. So I think that would be a really, really fun outfield. That would be great to watch. And again, very entertaining at the plate to see Vladdy hit back again. I miss that guy. Yeah, I mean, he was really just one of the cool, like he would swing out of his shoes every time. Mm -hmm. Like amazing. Uh, So we've got two hitters here. And obviously hitting is not what the angels lack. No. So a weird strategy for us. Firepower. We went went full Artie Moreno and just continued to add add hitting here. Uh, So on the modern side of things, are we adding? Are you going to add a pitcher for your for your modern player? I think I have to add a pitcher because again, they have the offense; they're good to go there. Um, so if we want to actually get them in the postseason and deep in the postseason, we're going to need a rotational anchor, someone that can really give them the seven innings, quality outings, and face the best competition. And know you can win this game. But at the same time, I still want to be entertained. And so I'm going to say one of my favorite players currently playing to be added to this rotation, Zach Greinke. Yes. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Um, you know, if it has to be today, Zach Greinke, you know, I'll accept that. If it can be 2016, Zach Greinke, come on down. Either way, I'm in. Honestly, I feel like because he's going to be a free agent uh, at the end of this season, uh, I think that 38-year-old Zach Greinke could still help out the Angels pitching staff. I feel like I'd, I'd oh, yeah. be fine with him as a number three or a number four on that. You know. Oh, can you imagine Granky as a number four? I want that life. I want yeah. that on my team. <laughs> Zach Granky, I do remember he was on the Angels for what was mm-hmm. it, like half a season? Or was it, it a was, full year? It was about half a season. Yeah. As a matter of fact, Noah, it was 13 games started. <laughs> okay. So, so he was like a rental then, right? Probably at the deadline around then. Yeah, it was kind of the same time that Milwaukee went on that magical run with CeCe. Remember that when they caught CeCe for half that season and went I on remember. Tear? Um Yeah, Granke was, I think Granke was on that team as well. Uh, but then in 2012, he moved over to the Angels for the half season. And he did pretty well. Uh, yeah, um, 13 games started. 
um, let's see, ERA, ERA plus of 108, which is still above average. Okay. And um, yeah, won six games for him down I the just, stretch. I just feel like that's one of those those uniforms that you just kind of forget, kind of like Andrew yeah. McCutcheon when he was a Yankee for a little stretch of time there. Um, yeah, I try, I try to forget that. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that cranky. Me, on the other hand, they need an ace. Obviously, Dylan Bundy looks great this year, uh, but Luis Castillo put him out there. Uh, I think yeah. that he's probably the most likely, uh, unless you get like Trevor Bauer opting out, who I think Trevor Bauer should have signed with the Angels. That's a whole nother 20 minute can of worms. <laughs> um, I think Luis Castillo, if it doesn't work out for the Reds this season, you know, that might be a, a decent fit yeah. uh, for the Angels. Also, I think, you know, with Vladdy, with Luis Castillo, we both we know they both already look great in red. So I feel like I feel like this is I'm very comfortable with my with my and that's what it here. is. Got to make yeah. them look good so they feel good. So they play good. Yeah. To the playoffs. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully Mike Trout won't need any additional help this year. Uh, he's obviously looking like Mike Trout again. But now with dad strength, he's got uh-huh. Shohei Otani, who is incredible. <laughs> there's that word again <laughs> there's that word again obviously Rendon Dylan Bundy's good so hopefully cross mm-hmm. our fingers we'll get to see Mike Trout make it to at least the wild card game I want to um, see Trout-tober Trout-tober definitely uh, but with that that just about uh, runs us up against our time for tonight uh, so once again uh, if you want to stay up to date with Short Hops and Tall Tales uh, be sure to follow us on Twitter at Short Hops PL uh, also follow my my good buddy Brandon Riddle at BD Riddle and myself at Noah A. Scott 6 uh, and don't forget subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts Spotify uh, wherever you listen to podcasts leave a review if you're liking what you're hearing it was a great time this week thanks for joining us for Brandon Riddle I'm Noah Scott and this has been the Short Hops and Tall Tales podcast see you next time <laughs> <laughs>